Bloodstream listeners, Patrick here. Did you know that I recently had a baby? Yes, you probably did know that. We've mentioned it plenty. But I don't know if you know that babies have a way of throwing curveballs into what I used to call plans, as this week has demonstrated to me quite clearly. And in addition to this feature of babies being on full display, my weeks also included no shortage of technical and equipment challenges and malfunctions with cables falling out of microphones, online platforms locking me out of... Well, it's not interesting to list a bunch of technical challenges. You get the idea. If you're watching the video, you're seeing me use what's been like my fifth different microphone to record this episode. But the point is, this is the best that my audio will sound in this episode as Amy and I had to battle through a number of challenges to deliver today's show, which I am proud to say, with the help of wizard producer Greg, we have indeed delivered. And there is good stuff to come, including our hyping up the first Bloodstream Live of 2021 at the end of the month. There's more on that and much else coming up right now. So, for example, taking a reduced course load, Mm -hmm. I myself in one semester decided to do that. And it was great relief for myself because it allowed me some more flexibility while working a job and living with a chronic condition. This week on Bloodstream, we're joined by Kathy Rafi to hear about her journey with thalassemia in honor of International Thalassemia Day, which is Saturday, May 8th. We'll also cover some community news and check in with Coalition for Hemophilia B's Glenn Monez on a couple of recent stories about Heme B specifically. Because the safety of patients is always paramount. We're also glad that the process is complete and that the trial can resume as gene therapy has the potential to substantially improve the lives and health of people affected by hemophilia B. Hi all, I'm your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any healthcare decisions. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Listeners, thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast wherever you listen. If you have already subscribed, thank you. Please rate, review, and share Bloodstream with friends and colleagues across your social networks. And with that, the scariest question that I will ask all episode. Hello, Amy. How are you? Why is that so scary? I had no idea it was scary. Because I don't know where it's going to go. It might be a Taylor Swift conversation. We might get into what it means to raise birds. Random lawnmowers go off whenever. It's a Pandora's box, Bordeaux. And yet I open it once again. I do. Amy, how are you? For real. Well, that was a good setup. And I have a really, I have, I have great news uh, about our backyard. Rob just had his birthday this past week. And we got from his younger brother, Sam Bradford, the greatest gift ever which was a squirrel <laughs> picnic table. Yes. And it's yes. a little tiny picnic table and this. it has a little umbrella. And anyway, I'm, <laughs> I, I will post it on social media because I feel like everyone should see it. But now we have squirrels that eat at our picnic table. Listeners, if you can picture squirrels eating at a picnic table with a raised umbrella, you are correctly picturing what's happening in Amy Bordeaux's backyard. Amy Bordeaux. I like Amy Bordeaux. Um, but yes, please do share that picture because it's amazing to see the little squirrels. Mm-hmm. And so now we're old. So like on Sunday, we sat there for outside with our coffee at least for three to four hours and just watched the squirrels eat at the picnic table. Oh, absolutely. I get it. But, you know, old. So 
All right. Well, we'll look forward to those photos. And listeners, if you have any, like, interesting creatures that you're building, you know, uh, lunch tables for in your backyard, please feel free to send us photos or videos. We'll have you on the podcast to talk about it. This is a big topic for us. So <laughs> let us know what you got. Please let us know. Please let us know. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right, a little bit of housekeeping, a reminder that you can find any and all Bloodstream media content, and that includes podcasts like Cheat Codes, Journeys, Flow, Once Upon a Gene, Pain Pod, and more, simply by following the All Bloodstream Stuff link in your program notes, or you can visit bloodstreammedia.com, where you'll find links to individual show pages and RSS feeds you can subscribe to. You'll also find links to the Teen Impact Awards, the Breaking Through Vocal Ensemble, the Adam Lynch Memorial Scholarship, and more. Again, that's the All Bloodstream Stuff link in the program notes. That one link will serve you well, or visit bloodstreammedia.com. Of course, you can always contact Bloodstream Media via Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and you can email Amy, me, or the show at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Uh, now, one programming note, not next week, but the following week. There's going to be no episode, May 21st, but I guess there's two programming notes. But get excited, because on Wednesday, May 26th, we're bringing back the live. Yes! Bringing back the live. Can't wait. Live. Live podcasting. We never did a Bloodstream Live together, Amy. <laughs> I know, and I, I'm wondering if this is going to be, again, like the scariest thing, because I'm a loose cannon. So, here we go. What? Here we go. <laughs> Uh, that is true. That is very, very true. But I will say it had everything to do with logistics and producing stuff. Nothing to do with you, my uh, esteemed co-host. But that is going to be taking place Wednesday, May 26th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Bloodstream Live with Bordo and Patrick and some of your other favorite Bloodstream contributors, including Josh, who will be back with another Let's Talk segment. Which, in my humble opinion, is the best thing we've done in a long time. And as we're building these Let's Talk segments, I don't want to hype, like overhype, but they're going to be great. They're going to be really yeah. great. I think we have a contributor from the Colorado HTC who is a psychologist who's worked with the Bleeding Disorder community for the last couple of years. So that's going to be really great. And of course, Josh is doing great work. So stick around so you can get more of that Let's Talk mental health good stuff. Great guests, goofy games, and yes, some valuable information too. Full package. How about that? Bloodstream Live, the live and loose episodes of the Bloodstream Podcast. Listeners, if you don't catch the live on Wednesday, May 26th. On Facebook, Bloodstream Media's Facebook page. Don't know if I said that part. You hadn't, but now you did. But it's going to be 7 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday, May 26th on Bloodstream Media's Facebook page. Follow all of the Bloodstream stuff link in that program notes to find Bloodstream Media on Facebook if needed. And then, if you are in luck, because the audio version will be released right here on the Bloodstream Podcast RSS feed two days later on its regular release date, Friday, May 28th. Listeners, if you have friends, family members, uh, people you know from local patient advocacy groups or your treatment center or your bleeding disorders camp or, or wherever you know these people from, if you think they might enjoy the Bloodstream podcast and would be interested in the guests, the news, the discussion topics we present here, and maybe if they aren't exactly a podcast person, then this is the perfect opportunity to get them in the Bloodstream loop. There's a link to the Facebook event in the program notes, and you can also direct people to the event tab on Bloodstream Media's Facebook page. All right, Amy, let's get into it, shall we? Yes, let's do it. Let's get into it. And just before we do, I'd like to remind you listeners, the Bloodstream podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. 
Yes, that's right, Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds, I'm into that, and are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey wherever on that journey they may be. You can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, that's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream podcast, I would just like to say, thanks, Takeda. So Patrick, I got my second vaccine shot last weekend. And oh, great. Uh, there was, yes, and it was great. Every, it was fine. I got a little sick, you know, following day, normal stuff. Rob got stabbed, like stabbed by this pharmacist. It was hilarious. But our mutual friend, uh, you will know him, everyone from Stop the Bleeding, Seth Kirshner, got hammered. I don't know if you saw, but his guy, like just, it was like no. a drive-by stabbing and <laughs> it, huge bruise everywhere. But the guy said afterwards, hey, you don't have a bleeding disorder, do you? So I was just wondering if you've had a vaccine experience and if you're, how, how you're doing. I mean, it just was interesting that we had like two stabbings <laughs> in our, so I just two wanted stabbings. to check in and see how you're doing, how vaccines normally are for you. Yeah. Like, do you disclose before or do you just like take it? Do you like how? I, I, anyway, we all thought of you. <laughs> <I'm trying. laughs> you know, it's funny you say that, too, because another mutual friend of ours yesterday, she's reading a book and in the book, suddenly the person brings up like learning about Ryan White and how it expanded her view of HIV and AIDS and homosexuality and how he had hemophilia and it's his blood disease. And I was like, hey, you can't get away from it. It, it sneaks into all these little aspects of life that you don't anticipate. Rare bleeding disorders, rare mind. Yeah, um, so I have had my first of uh, two shots for the Pfizer vaccine. Second one's in a few days. No sickness after the first one either, though I hear it generally is like the second one that people um, kind of have responses to. Uh, with this one and really with previous vaccines, I don't think I've ever had like an abnormal, we'll call it like bleeding disorders response to it. And certainly like, you know, Rob and Josh and I had a plethora of vaccines from 2015 to 18. And I know they've just continued on, but I certainly had my fair share during that time. And outside of like the normal, hey, your arm might be tired for, you know, hours or, or it might be some soreness. I never had anything more than that. But I do wonder if like those with von Willebrand factor deficiencies, because there's maybe more von Willebrand factor activity related to like a, a muscle vaccine shot, than say like factor eight activity, if maybe those folks find they have more reactions. I don't know. I've never really actually talked about it with like community friends. And as you know, we, we don't go anywhere these days. So I guess it'll be, it'll be a while yet before I can ask, but I've, I've never thought about that. That's interesting. It was just an interesting thing that both of it happened on the same day to both of them. And, you know, and I know everybody get your vaccines, by the way, like get your vaccines, like let's do this um, pro vaccine here on bloodstream. But I think it seemed just like the technique because Rob went first and she obviously, she, she actually goes, Oh, like she, like, I don't know what she did, but she was like delicate and smooth with me. Like I, I didn't even feel it. It was like rose petals going in there. Oh, nice. So good for you. Sorry, yeah. Rob. 
Anyway, it just, yeah, and it just made me laugh that the guy actually said to Seth, you don't have a bleeding disorder, do you? Like, it made us all laugh. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to have been in Seth's brain at that moment. Um, Well, look, I will tell you, so I'm I'm having my next one between now and the next episode we record. So uh, I'll let you know if I have any funky reaction or anything notable. You know, we'll talk about it again next week. So, Amy, funny, I mentioned Von Wilburn Factor at the end of this year, and uh, that's actually the focus of an article I want to talk about just before we hear from Glenn Monez and the Coalition of of Heme B on some stuff related to to Heme B. But there was an article that looked at Von Wilburn Factor, and and it it jumped out to me. You know, we're often talking about bleeding disorders because that's that's what hemophilia and Von Wilburn diseases are. But this article and the study that it gets into are actually looking at how Von Wilburn Factor could be used or manipulated in order to create treatments to help with thrombosis or excessive clotting. What's interesting is that to date, there's only one FDA approved drug that targets von Willebrand factor to treat thrombosis. But even with that drug, no one has understood the specific mechanism behind how it actually accomplishes that until now, so there's this associate professor at, until now, there's an associate professor at the Department of Bioengineering at Lehigh University named Frank Zhang. And he, along with colleagues at Emory University School of Medicine and the University of Nottingham, have identified the specific structural element of von Wilburn factor that allows it to bind with platelets and initiate clotting. Uh, the team says that they call that specific unit the discontinuous auto-inhibitory module, or AIM, also known as AIM, shout out to 90s kids, and that, they say, is the prime site for new drug development. So here's a quote from the article. The AIM module, I don't know if they call it AIM or AIM, but we're calling it AIM here in Bloodstream. The AIM module allows the von Willebrand factor molecule to remain not active in normal circulating blood uh, and activates the von Willebrand factor instantly upon bleeding. In our research, this is Zhang speaking, we identified that the one currently available drug works by binding the AIM region of the von Willebrand factor and enhancing the force threshold to mechanically remove von Willebrand factor's auto-inhibitory structures, opening up a new avenue to the development of antithrombotic drugs targeting the AIM structures. I understand like 50% of that, but what I basically gather is now that they actually understand where on the von Willebrand factor is uh, a structural element that can be manipulated to help with clotting disorders, we now can start looking at this protein in a way unlike we ever have before. And it's worth pointing out, according to the CDC, there's about 60,000 to 100,000 deaths every year in the US as a result of thrombosis. So being able to manipulate this von Willebrand factor, which the article also refers to as mysterious. And we've certainly spoken plenty about the new VWD guidelines and how important they've been, the transitory nature of von Willebrand factor. So it's not a surprise to see a word like mysterious pop up in here, but it is again reconfirming that there's so much we don't know. And there's so many discoveries that are happening in real time right now that are gonna have widespread ramifications for not just people with bleeding disorders, but people with clotting disorders and people with other rare and genetic chronic illnesses. So I just thought that was really neat that there's been a discovery of von Wilburn factor that's gonna allow for this whole new treatment class to solve a true unmet need. And I just want to say right out of the gate before I respond that I'm not a medical professional, OMG, but where my mind spins is I've 
been enough, like I've been around science and research enough and heard people that discoveries like this will trickle down into other research areas. And so for our Von Willebrand community, how exciting that this was discovered, that this little, you know, structure was discovered in a way that could be manipulated to maybe um, further some drug development or some, you know, I, something for the bleeding, you know, community as well. And I just want to second, like, you know, just reiterate what you said. This, we've all known that Von Willebrand's disease is so mysterious and it can be so heartbreaking to not have diagnosis black and white, um, treatment black and white. And so this is just, again, <laughs> you guys aren't crazy. This is very complicated science and they're still figuring it out. So this is, thanks for bringing this to, to my attention and, and, uh, yeah, this is this is but this will be cool to follow. It will be cool to follow and you're right. The 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 ripple effect it will have ramifications that we can't even really know right now. I also want to point out it mentions in the article they were not um, necessarily surprised by this discovery based on prior research that suggested this may be the case, which is a testament to research and how so often when we hear about research that gets published, there's always the like more research is needed in order to blah, blah, blah. And people like me can be like, just at some point we have to just make decisions with the research we have. But this is also part of that process is as studies build upon each other, it sets up opportunities like this breakthrough. These breakthroughs don't happen out of nowhere. It's like that old adage of a lifetime of work to become an overnight success. It's the same sort of thing here. There's just one other tiny little detail I want to point out, and then we can move on to hear from Glenn. And if readers, listeners, if you want to become readers and read this article and learn more, link in the program notes. Um, but there's a special tool that they use, and it's called optical tweezers. The optical tweezers can grab tiny objects. This is Zhang speaking. We can grab the von Willebrand factor. I just love that like high science uses optical tweezers to grab tiny objects. I'm like, okay, this is language. I, I did. I thought we were going to be able to get through this article without saying optical tweezers. And we, we didn't, we couldn't get through without Patrick having no. to say optical tweezers. Okay. Continue. Continue. No, <laughs> I say it a bunch more times. So, uh, we can grab the von Willebrand factor. And at the same time, we apply force to see how the protein changes shape to see how the proteins are activated when there's a mechanical force giving them pressure. So that I thought was cool too, like this funny little tool, but then the way it's actually used to see how does this thing react when there's different pressure applied to it, just like, we're talking about such tiny little molecules inside the body and it's incredible what science is doing. So anyway, if you wanna know more, link in the program notes, but now let's move on to get a few comments on some stories regarding HIMB from our friend, Glenn Moniz. Glenn Moniz, thanks so much for joining me. I know we only have a few minutes, so I wanna just get right into it. There was a story in Hemophilia News Today, the title, U.S. Healthcare Costs Average 25 Times Higher for Hemophilia B. And the question I have for you is, why was Hemophilia B the focus of this study? And from your point of view, is there anything meaningful for patients and families, particularly in the Hemophilia B community, to take from this? I think that the study is in response to all of the products not only that have come on the market for hemophilia B in recent years, but products that are currently in development, which is a terrific thing. Uh, I think that the study confirms what we've understood for a long time, which is that hemophilia treatment as it exists is expensive. Of course, this can affect out-of-pocket costs for individuals and families, but much of the expense is borne by the payers. 
as these new treatments are developed and brought to market, it's really essential for us that access to adequate reimbursement be maintained. In analyzing the cost effectiveness of these new therapies to payers, it's good to have a study like this that will show a comparison of someone with hemophilia and someone without. So we have a full picture, not only of the status of reimbursement as it is, but looking forward as products come on the market. Thank you, Glenn. The second story I wanted to get your take on, we spoke about this in December when news first broke and we gave an update last month as that became available. Uh, Headline from the Pharmacy Times, FDA removes hold on Unicure Hemophilia B gene therapy program. And so my question is, what was your reaction to this news and what should the Hemophilia B community expect to hear next from this program? We were saddened that a patient enrolled in the trial lost their life due to comorbidities that were already present. But we're glad that the trial was temporarily halted to allow for due diligence at all levels because the safety of patients is always paramount. We're also glad that the process is complete and that the trial can resume as gene therapy has the potential to substantially improve the lives and health of people affected by hemophilia B, also for people with hemophilia A and a whole range of chronic debilitating and life-threatening conditions. We believe that uh, patients who were already enrolled in the study and participating will uh, be contacted by the centers and told uh, when they can resume. Uh, I'm assuming it's going to be very soon. Uh, And for us as patient advocates, we're going to continue to encourage research that advances treatment while maintaining patient safety at all time. Any patients who are considering participating in a clinical trial should always discuss it with their own healthcare providers and families. Glenn, again, thank you for giving us a few minutes. And listeners, if you would like to hear more from the Coalition for Heme B, simply visit hemob.org. That's H-E-M-O, the letter B, dot org. Thank you to Glenn and thank you, Patrick, for uh, bringing that to our attention. We love making uh, Heme B um, specific announcements and conversation on the show. And we also love introducing you to other uh, bleeding disorders, other clotting disorders in the hematology space. And so when Kathy Rafi um, contacted us about thalassemia, we felt that it was a perfect opportunity to have her on and highlight International Thalassemia Day, which is going to be Saturday, May 8th. So we're excited to uh, hear from Kathy and learn a little bit more about thalassemia. Let's get into it. I am here with Kathy Rafi, a rare disease advocate, mother of two boys, and a professional counselor. Kathy, welcome to the podcast. We're so glad to have you with us today. Thank you, Amy. So how did you first get connected with Bloodstream and with Patrick in particular? I think this story is kind of fun. (laughs) I think I was on social media and I saw um, Dr. Vichinsky's interview on sickle cell. He had spoken at the conference about uh, thalassemia. And so I listened to the podcast and I followed Bloodstream. And as I listened, I thought, I wonder if they've done anything on thalassemia. And I'm really happy to be able to speak to this, both as a patient and as a counselor and as a mother and wife. I think it's always great to have awareness on rare diseases. That's great. So give us an overview on thalassemia. What are your symptoms? What has treatment been like? Let us know a little bit about it. 
So thalassemia is an inherited blood disorder that gets passed on from parents to children. And it's not a single disorder, but it's a group of related disorders. And there are differences between different types of thalassemia. So you might have heard of alpha thalassemia, beta thalassemia, e-beta thalassemia, or sickle cell thalassemia. And I wanted to focus on beta thalassemia because I have beta thalassemia intermedia. And beta thalassemia has three forms. So the minor, the major, and the intermedia. And I'm going to say the intermedia is kind of that gray zone. It's in between the minor and the major. And so the severity of the symptoms that they may show can fall between the two extremes of the minor form and the major form. And it's not black and white because of the clinical severity of the condition. And so a person with intermedia can show symptoms like headaches, dizziness, fatigue, shorter breath, things like bone deformities, and even an enlarged spleen. But in any forms of thalassemia, it's really important to understand how blood is made because it is a blood disorder. And so hemoglobin is the oxygen carrying component of our red blood cells. And it's made up of two different types of proteins, the alpha and the beta, which is where we get the alpha and the beta name from for thalassemia, depending on which chain is affected. And when the body's not making enough of these, either of these two proteins, then the red blood cells don't form properly and they cannot carry oxygen. And oxygen is really vital in how our bodies function and our, how our organs function. So the result that you see is anemia. And this kind of anemia, thalassemia, can start early in childhood and last throughout life. So I was diagnosed at the age of about 12. I do have a younger sibling who's 10 years younger than I. And when he showed um, some severe symptoms, then off to the hospital we went and he was diagnosed. And when they did blood work, they also took blood from me and they did a hemoglobin electrophoresis. Mm -hmm. And through those tests and genetic testing, they found out that yes, I also as a sibling have thalassemia intermediate. So if you were to look at my red blood cells, you'd see that they're quite small. They're not produced in normal amounts. And my red blood cells do not have enough functional hemoglobin. So in my early years, I would say that I was quite asymptomatic for the most part. I lived a very normal life. I rode my bike and I had my playdates, everything that you would see in early childhood. But particularly toward the teen years is when I began to show some mild symptoms. And I do recall that, you know, for example, in grade six, when I played on the girls um, basketball team, I would be out of out short, out of breath, more so than the other players would be and make sense of it at that time. But this is years later that I recall, oh, yes, that is why I was always out of breath. <laughs> and so when in my 30s, my husband and I were ready for family planning, we did some genetic counseling, of course, just to make sure that he did not carry the gene for thalassemia, because I did carry the gene. And I, I was monitored closely for both my pregnancies. I also had a miscarriage, which can be really hard when you have a blood disorder to be losing great amounts of blood. Um, but after my pregnancies, I did not require transfusion throughout pregnancies. By the age of 37, I think my body had seen quite a lot of wear and tear. Mm. And I would say that these symptoms had shown earlier, but by that point in time, it was just, you know, my quality of life was really low. 
Mm-hmm. And this is when thalassemia truly began to affect my life, including my work. And I, you know, started my treatments at this point. And so today, while I'm genetically considered a thalassemia intermedia, by treatment, I'm treated clinically as a thalassemia major. Huh. And the reason we say that is because the deciding factor is the amount of blood transfusions that are needed by the patient. So I will be receiving, I do receive the same amount of blood that those classified as major receive. So there really isn't uh, much difference in the sense of our treatment between intermediate and major in my case today, except I would say I did start many years later. If you know an intermediate patient was born today, I would say they, they will look at the um, hemoglobin and recommend that the person maintains it between nine and a half to 10 and a half. And mm-hmm. that is optimal because you want to really avoid bone marrow expansion Mm -hmm. and some of the damage that goes on, for example, to the spleen. There could be, as I mentioned, bone deformities. It is case by case. So even within intermediate, there is a lot of gray in terms of how each of us shows symptoms and whether we do require treatment or not. And something that kind of piqued my interest that I guess I didn't realize and excuse my ignorance is the only treatment whole blood transfusions for folks? Correct. Correct. So we require several units of blood and it really depends on the individual. So in my case, when I go into the hospital every three weeks, currently it's every three weeks, I will receive four units of blood. Hmm. And at one point I was getting two units every two weeks. Wow. And when you were a teenager um, and a college student, a young woman, no treatment, there wasn't any treatment. Yes, there was treatment. I needed it for the quality of life that I was living as a teenager into my 20s. Had the guidelines been used, the same guidelines been used back then, perhaps Mm -hmm. I would have started my treatment earlier. And some of the symptoms that I've lived with over my 20s and 30s perhaps they would have been less impactful in my day to day. But I I got by and I think it was, you know, in my late 30s at age of 37 that I could no longer get by the way that I had. But it, it did bring a lot of fatigue. And there were points in time, you know, for example, in university, I could not pull an all nighter. Mm. But I found ways of coping academically to be able to manage my course load and live life quote unquote, normally as much as possible. Hmm. How did you first get into it? And how did how has thalassemia impacted the work that you do? Sure. So I am a registered psychotherapist and counselor. And I really want to understand the client's life and what is their world from their perspective. And so by using an eclectic approach, I can draw from different approaches Mm -hmm. and use the ones that work best for that student. And I just want to say in terms of the person-centered theory, research has shown that the largest contribution to therapeutic outcomes comes from clients themselves. Their motivation, involvement, and engagement, it's actually clients that make therapy work, not counselors or therapists. So we really respect the client for who they are, their life experiences, and where they're at when they enter therapy. Hmm. 
For some of your patients throughout the years that have been managing chronic or rare diseases, what are some of the common themes that have come out in terms of mental health, in terms of where they're struggling and how that connects back to their disease or disorder? There is a lot of independence given to them in terms of the decisions that they have to make about their care, in terms of how they will come for treatment while managing their studies, and were led into certain treatments and decisions that were made for them, of course, in the best care, but now they need to do the advocacy work. And so one of the themes that I've seen is making clients aware that advocacy is huge. It's a huge part of any condition that we live with. Ask your questions, understand, don't be afraid to ask again for clarification. And really think about how this condition impacts your life. There's always options. So for example, taking a reduced course load. Mm -hmm. I myself in one semester decided to do that and it was great relief for myself because it allowed me some more flexibility while working a job and living with a chronic condition. To talk to students about these options that sometimes, you know, their mental health, they have anxiety and they're working through things that any young adult would have on their plate, but it's always in addition to managing this chronic condition that is huge. And um, I would work with a student to say, you know what, here's your advocacy training. You've you've really got to start now because when you leave this space, In post-secondary, you will be a lifelong advocate for your needs and really helping them to develop that skill of advocacy and becoming comfortable with who they are was a piece of the work that we did. That's such a fantastic piece of advice and guidance for all rare disease and even the disability community to be proactive in that so you're not in the thick of semester and overwhelmed and overloaded and then you can't get out. That's just fantastic. And so when I decided to take that leave of absence, which was the best decision because had I not, my health would have been on the line. And I did relapse and I could see that my my treatment was getting more severe, that I really needed to make this the focus of my life for my children and for myself and my husband. And so I always remember that while I may have been a go-getter in my 20s and things looked differently for me in terms of my expectations of myself, today my mental health is a little bit more about keeping things in balance mm. and I would say I'm still achieving and contributing. It's in a different way. And I look to some of my thalassemia friends. Some of them are nurses and teachers, and they lead very active life styles, including having families. And they are capable of of working many, many hours. And for myself, being at work right now, the, the nine to five I I cannot be there right now, but I look for ways to contribute in the work that I do. It's very inspiring. Bravo to you and hats off to you. I I just think that's wonderful. Where can listeners uh, learn a little bit more about thalassemia, keep up with you? How can we connect with you in the future? Sure. So I am on some social platforms. I'm on LinkedIn. I know that's uh, celebrated on Bloodstream. (laughs) It is. I am It is. 
uh, by my co-host in particular. Yes. <laughs> I encourage people to check out the Thalassemia Foundation of Canada and in the U.S., the Cooley's Anemia Foundation. I really want to say thank you to Bloodstream for providing these opportunities for patients, guest speakers, specialists, all people who come onto the podcast to bring that awareness to others. I think rare disease, 72% of it is genetic. 70% of genetic rare diseases start in childhood and rare disease affects three and a half percent to five and a half percent of the world's population. A lot of patients today live with that hope because we have seen the good work and the outcome of people becoming cured and having better quality of lives with certain medications as do people with thalassemia today. Well, Kathy, I have just enjoyed this immensely. Thank you so much. I've learned so much. Thank you, Kathy and Glenn, for joining Amy and I on today's show. Thanks, as always, to our presenting sponsor, Takeda, BleedingDisorders.com, for wherever on your journey you may be. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Amy. And Amy, what do we have in store for listeners next week? Well, in the spirit of highlighting patient stories of the disease states, we have Bob Falkenberg. He is a 12-year leukemia and adult blood stem cell transplant survivor. Absolutely incredible. He's riding his bike 3,500 miles across the U.S. to raise funds and awareness, and he's going to join us next week, and I can't wait to meet him. I'm not going to lie. Nice. Way to go, Bob. All right, so... Come back next week to hear from Bob. Check out the program notes in your podcast player or on bloodstreammedia.com where you will find links and information related to the stories and segments featured on this episode. Have a bleeding disorders or health topic you'd like to hear us discuss more? Is there an expert or a guest that you're dying to hear from? Want to inquire about casting opportunities for Bloodstream podcasts or Believe Limited films? Well, email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com and connect with Bloodstream Media on social media. You'll find all of us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And of course, you can follow and you can message myself and Patrick James Lynch on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Or if you're nerds, you can do it on LinkedIn. You can message me on LinkedIn, but I won't respond for like three weeks because no one does LinkedIn nerds. except Patrick. Nerds. Nerds, 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 nerds. Hey, to my fellow nerds out there, I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And to my non-nerds out there, I am your other host, Amy Borg. And until next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.